This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. In the late 1930s, the world was at the doorstep of dramatic change. For the young men of the U.S. Marine Corps, this change would mean nearly five years of incredible hardship and brutal combat. Victor Kreuzat, retired Marine Corps colonel, was one of those young men. After a brief period of training and conditioning, he was shipped off with thousands of other men to the then obscure island of Guadalcanal. As the furthest westward extension of the Japanese Empire, the island represented one of the last chances for the United States to turn back the Japanese in the Pacific. And so it was in August of 1942, a long seven months after the horrible events in Honolulu, the American Pacific Fleet landed 19,000 Marines on Guadalcanal and then engaged the Japanese Navy in some of the most devastating naval battles of World War II. Victor Kreuzat was then a second lieutenant watching the sea battles from the island. It had been a long trip from the college campus to this far-flung battlefield. How I got in the Marine Corps. The short answer to how I got in the Marine Corps was that I was born in Tripoli, Libya. And being born in Tripoli naturally, uh, either that or the halls of Montezuma, I'd in the Marine Corps automatically. But that's not the real truth because at the time I had the foggiest notion of what the Marine Corps was, neither did my parents. The truth is I came into the Marine Corps because there was a war going on in Europe. My father being a very serious reader of the news emanating from Europe was convinced that it was just a matter of time until we got in it. I was graduating from the University of Syracuse, 1940, with a reserve commission in the Army so that in the event anything happened, I was bound to be called up. And uh, at the same time, I'd received the fellowship to do graduate work. And then the Marine Corps came along with the offer of a regular commission to the three of us in the ROTC program, the ROTC regimental commander and the two battalion commanders. We discussed it and decided that being a regular officer was probably better than being a reservist waiting to be called, so we all accepted the generous Marine Corps offer and put in a chit to become second lieutenants in the Marine Corps. And uh, that, that's about how we got into the service. Very simple and straightforward. Now, the atmosphere that we found on the campus at that time was essentially not militantly hostile to the military in any sense of the Vietnam War, for example, but no great enthusiasm or particular understanding of what was going on in Europe. The Germans had attacked Poland in 39. There was the strange war where the Frenchman uh, pictured sitting on a stool watching the Germans and the Germans playing music on the other side of their barbed wire. And it was a drôle de guerre in those days. But in 1940, uh, the Germans broke through the French lines, headed for the Channel, and pretty soon they were in Paris. There was a capitulation of French arms. All of this happened just as bad as I was graduating. So it seemed to me that the decision to go into the Corps was correct. But I was surprised going back to Syracuse after listening to my father's comments as these events were developing in Europe, 
to discover really no evident either enthusiasm or, or general feeling among the student body. It was just something, something in the news, not really of primary importance. And I recall being particularly struck by the strange fact that President Roosevelt had declared a national emergency shortly after this had happened in Europe, so that there was actually in Washington a display of concern which I didn't feel reflected in the, in the campus. At any rate, uh, the three of us uh, went off, accepted, first thing we did was accept an army uh, offer for two weeks of active duty at Camp Dix. And uh, this was pending the processing of our request for a regular Marine Corps commission. So we went down to Camp Dix and as a young second lieutenant, I was standing on line to draw my equipment because we were going to be living in tents. And as I got in front of the supply sergeant, I extended my arms and uh, lo and behold, a young soldier popped up. He extended his arms. The supply sergeant dumped all my gear on this uh, poor soldier. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I, I'm getting the lieutenant's gear, sir. I'm, I'm the lieutenant's orderly. And I've been living uh, for $2 a week rent and five dollars a week food in college for the last few years and suddenly finding myself with an orderly was a rather strange experience even though we were just living in tents uh, i must confess that i don't remember much about the training the army gave us in two weeks but when i got to the philadelphia navy yard where the basic school was then located the question of uh, orderlies never came up again there just weren't any in the marine corps the basic school at the Philadelphia Navy Yard was a rather interesting experience. A great deal of the instructions were strictly still based pretty much on World War II, World War I type of uh, training and information. But there were two basic things that really intrigued me. One was the Small Wars Manual in which the Marine Corps had assembled all of the lessons that they had learned in the banana wars in Santo Domingo and Nicaragua and Haiti and all the rest of it. So it was essentially a, a down-earth document that gave you some very, very excellent experience on how to conduct small wars against dissident elements, how to hold elections in countries, and a great deal of information, which of course will become relevant years later in Vietnam and uh, elsewhere. The other document that was of considerable interest was uh, FTP, Fleet Tactical Publication 167, which was essentially the, the essence of the conduct of amphibious operations, which was something that the Marine Corps had been working a great deal with uh, and uh, was now on the threshold of really the payoff was coming. But uh, the work that the Marine Corps had done up to then had been largely theoretical because the equipment that needed, although it had been thought of and the type of equipment required and steps had been taken to procure it, there just weren't funds for that sort of thing. I recall the landing craft, the total budget for landing craft back in 39-40 period was $40,000. You couldn't buy very many landing craft at $40,000. Uh, 
Well, at any rate, we went through basic school. There was 154 of us second lieutenants. And the, the basic thing in, in basic school was to ensure that the lieutenants were properly indoctrinated into the Marine Corps attitude and spirit before they ever got near troops, which they, of course, would, would be commanding. We uh, found the training rather, aside from the elements that were from World War I, uh, some of the other training was circumscribed by the space available. The parade ground at the Navy Yard was adequate for parade ground type of activities, but when we got to scouting and patrolling, we walked out the main gate and uh, went into League Island Park, and there we had civilians to contend with, pigeons who had eaten too much, and uh, other problems that had nothing to do with scouting and patrolling. The good places to go was Cape May for the weapons firing and uh, at Indiantown Gap for the field work. And that was near Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, it, was a, it was a nice place to be. And uh, in the summertime, I had my first experience flying in, a, in an airplane, which happened to be an old dive bomber. Uh, biplane, it looked like a World War I model, it actually wasn't, it was in between the wars, but it had all kinds of little tags on it that said, don't do this, don't do that, don't, and uh, the thing is, it flew. That's about all I could say, the rest of it, uh, I, I don't know. I do know that uh, it was a, really an interesting experience to see some of the old type of aviation. Later on, of course, things changed considerably. But at any rate, we, we graduated from the basic school in 1941 in February. And that very same month was the month that the Fleet Marine Force came into being at division and wing level. The, the uh, two brigades the Marines had and the two air groups were designated divisions and wings at the time. That didn't put anybody behind the, in the ranks, but at least the designations were uh, objective of what the Marine Corps was seeking to attain. And most of the students in the class upon graduation were assigned either to the Fleet Marine Force East Coast, the first division, or West Coast, the second division. Uh, some particularly selected few uh, got the jobs that we all asked for was, first of all, everybody wanted to go to the 4th Marines in Shanghai. This was the great plum of the Corps. This was a place where privates had orderlies, privates and servants. Beer was several cents a bottle. And there were all sorts of inducements out there for a grand time. Well, of course, the four people that went out there, they all got promptly died in the process of being prisoners of the Japanese, the only one survivor was a casualty rate of 75% amongst those people. The other group of people that were the fortunate ones, they went seagoing. And the two of them, the number one man in our class, Harry Gaver and Carlton Simonson. Gaver was on the Oklahoma and he got killed at Pearl Harbor Day. And Simonson is still down at the bottom of Pearl Harbor on the Arizona. Uh, the rest of them got pretty badly shook up, but not, no others were killed at the time. At any rate, for us, it was, for me particularly, it was Quantico, where I was supposed to await the arrival of the 1st Division elements 
finishing a training exercise in the Caribbean. We went to Quantico and discovered that it was still operating under the peacetime rules, which meant that an officer going to the post movie had to wear coat and tie at Quantico, and if he went to Belvoir, the home of the U.S. Army engineers, the normal dress for movies there was either evening dress, military, which meant blues in the Marine Corps, or black tie. And this formality was rather amusing coming in at the time that uh, the war was beginning to take a hold and uh, a lot of people were moving into the Corps. I came in, the Marine Corps was less than 30,000. By the time we left, the reserves had been mobilized and we were running at 65,000. And uh, by the end of the war in 1945, the Marine Corps was over half a million. Gives you an idea of the expansion of the Corps at the time. At any rate, back to Quantico. Sure enough, the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines came up from the Caribbean and finally I was assigned to the battalion and uh, reassigned to the mortar platoon of M Company of the 3rd Battalion, which is an uh, interesting experience which I had for just a few short days, I should say a few short weeks, until I got called to join the detachment of the amphibian tractor unit down in Dunning, Florida. Now, how that had happened is an interesting thing. I had been looking around the post of Quantico, just getting familiar with it. I'd gotten down to the edge of the Potomac River, and I saw a strange vehicle that was running on the ground across the little beach there and into the water, directly into the water and cracking around. I marveled at this machine that appeared to be truly amphibian or amphibious and uh, went over to investigate and I found a sergeant named Charlie Raper, another sergeant named Gibson and the two of them had brought this machine up from the Caribbean where it had been tested and I discovered that the machine was unique in that it had been built for the Marine Corps by Donald Roebling, its inventor. And uh, the Marine Corps had taken it down to the Caribbean for testing to see what kind of performance it gave and had decided this was going to be purchased. Uh, an initial procurement, but with military specifications. The one that was there uh, that I looked at and eventually Charlie Raper took me out and it was made out of aluminum. It was an aluminum box with aluminum tracks that uh, deep grouses on the tracks that acted as paddles which gave the vehicle propulsion in the water and it had a Lincoln Zephyr engine. And the Marine Corps specifications were for a larger vehicle labeled about 16,000 pounds, an eight-ton vehicle powered by a Hercules 150 horsepower engine, which was very much underpowered. But that came later. That was the first production model. At any rate, enthused as I was by this machine, when the call came for anybody interested in volunteering to join a detachment uh, that was going to start working with these machines as they came out of the factory, I immediately volunteered. 
And I heard nothing more about it. Then I got transferred to the 5th Marines. And then I was in the 5th Marines about three or four weeks when I got orders down to the detachment in Florida. And there was a very interesting thing. I arrived just about the time that the first vehicle was coming off the assembly line, which was uh, July of 1941. And the assembly line was a very small assembly line because it was a small food machinery factory at Dunedin, Florida, that was turning out uh, agricultural type equipment, which was their basic uh, activity, but it happened to be able to turn out these amphibian tractors, and Donald Roebling lived nearby, and, and uh, uh, so that he was there to supervise the initial construction, and essentially the assembly of the assembly line as such. And I recall very definitely uh, Donald Roebling, who was a gentleman suffering from a bad case of obesity, which he couldn't nothing to do with him actually it was a, an illness but sitting down in the cement floor of the factory with the various engineers and various marines talking about this strange machine and the, the fact was of course that nobody really knew how it performed and it had never been given the kind of testing that it had received done in the in the field in the caribbean and certainly we were giving it a tremendous amount of surf time, ground time, all kinds. We did everything that we could possibly conceive of with that machine, keeping careful information notes that in the afternoon we would pass it on to the engineer people so that there was a record of all this performance. Essentially, there being no manuals on the machine, we were writing the manual as we went along. And then uh, during the late in the summer, two of us got orders to go down to Higgins factory down in New Orleans where Higgins was developing and manufacturing torpedo boats for the Dutch to use in the Dutch East Indies, uh, manufacturing the beginning of the Higgins boats which were going into the Navy inventory and the factory was absolutely humming, humming, humming. And we had a delightful time in the morning. We would go off on Lake Pontchartrain with a different type of vehicle each morning, a different type of boat each morning learn how to operate it, basically essentials, and then in the afternoon we would go to the factory where we would see how that particular boat was built, where the controls went and all the rest of the, the gadgetry that went along with it. It was a very fascinating period. And of course, I should add parenthetically that the evening, we didn't have enough money to uh, entertain ladies and also take advantage of the excellent restaurants in New Orleans, so we went and dined instead of uh, chasing the ladies. And uh, Higgins' secretary was uh, a little bit perturbed at our ignoring her. She was indeed an attractive young lady. But I explained to her when we were in the office saying farewell to Mr. Higgins and having a departing drink. We, I talked to Crystal later on and, and uh, explained to her that the reason we had made a pass was simply that we probably preferred Antoine's for dinner and couldn't afford both. Well, she she uh, she didn't quite know how to take it, and I still don't know how, how well she came out of it. But at any rate, that uh, was a negative experience in the pursuit of women. Um, I got back to Florida. 
And there in Florida, I saw my name on a roster to uh, join the first division, uh, the first amphibian tractor battalion to be activated in the near future. And a detachment of 48 of us were assigned to form Company A of the first battalion. And we were departing Dunedin, Florida, scheduled on the 8th of December, 1941. So what happened, of course, is I was making my farewell calls on a major commanding the detachment on the 7th of December when I found everybody in the house glued to the radio and discovered that they were listening to the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. send-off the next morning, we of course acting under orders that we'd had since November, but nobody else knew about it and the people in town heard that the Marines were marching to the railroad station. So by the time we got down there, we had all the mothers and fathers and the young ladies in the community were out there to see us off. The fathers with bottles of bourbon in their hands and the mothers with cookies and candy and the girls with what girls do best. Uh, the next day when we arrived at New River, North Carolina, we went into a tent camp. It was cold, miserable, and rainy, and the only time you ever took a bath was if you went on liberty, and you never went on liberty because it was too hard to get to and nobody had any transportation. A very miserable time. At any rate, at that time, the first division was 7,000 strong and busy building up its strength, but it was a slow going and no sooner had we acquired a uh, basic nucleus of the three infantry regiments than uh, the division got orders to detach one of the regiments and send it to Samoa. So the 7th Marines took all the trained people we had, the best NCOs available, and was brought up to war footing and sent to Samoa. The rest of the division had to start all over again the 1st and 5th Marines to rebuild. Well, meanwhile, the amphibian tractor detachment uh, went from Company A to a uh, full battalion. And eventually, as we were beginning to load ships, uh, loading troop trains first uh, to go to Norfolk where we were loading ships, I was promoted to uh, first lieutenant after two years as a second lieutenant, I was promoted to first lieutenant when we started moving our gear to Norfolk. And by the time I got aboard ship to sail, I was promoted to first to captain. I didn't believe it until the first sergeant pulled out the orders from headquarters Marine Corps, uh, which was very nice going away present. I went aboard the uh, Wakefield the old Manhattan with the 5th Marines to which I was attached as commanding officer of Company A and 1st Amphibian Tractor Battalion. And also on the ship was the division headquarters, General Vandegrift and his staff and the headquarters unit. The rest of my battalion was scattered amongst a number of ships carrying the 30 amphibian tractors that belonged to our company we set sail and 27 days later, we got to Wellington, New Zealand. 
there we eventually got off the ship. By, I should say that by the time we got to New Zealand, of course, we'd gone from spring back to winter again. And it rained just as much in New Zealand as it did in the North, New River, North Carolina, and just as cold and miserable. But anyway, we got to New Zealand, started unloading ship and moving up about 35 miles out of town to where our camp was located, Paikakariki. And uh, it was a very interesting experience to find in the pouring rain, the camp that we were uh, assigned to consisting of some tent platforms in which in the middle of the platform was a bundle, otherwise known as a tent. And uh, these tents were erected in the pouring rain and we made a miserable little home for ourselves. No sooner had we done that than I was called to, to a conference on the ship, conference held by the commanding officer of the 5th Marines, informing me that I had to have my company back aboard ship by the 4th of July, and, and I was supposed to draw ammunition and all sorts of nice things. And I mentioned to the colonel that we had our vehicles had not been painted, they were in the original aluminum color, aluminum paint that came out of the factory which was not a particularly attractive paint to go to combat with. And we also had uh, no radios and no machine guns. All of these were coming in second echelon shipping. And second echelon shipping was due in on the 11th of July and the sailing date for the operation was the 22nd. Now what had happened was that we had arrived in New Zealand on the 14th of June. Twelve days later, General Vanegrift had gone to Auckland to pay his respects to the theater commander, Admiral Gormley, and Admiral Gormley had informed General Vandegrift that instead of spending what we anticipated was to be the remainder of the year training in New, in New Zealand, which we badly needed because we had never had division-level training or regimental echelon training, that we were going to load aboard ship and sail on the 22nd of July for the invasion of the Solomons. Well, the, the Vanegrift knew this. Of course, this was kept secret from us. But when I was aboard ship being told that I'd just I'd turn, turn my company around and, and close the camp that had just opened and get into, uh, uh, go back aboard ship even before I had my vehicles ready for combat. There's something more than a rehearsal or some, something more than the training exercise was in the wind, especially when you draw ammunition. Uh, you normally don't do that for a training exercise. At any rate, it was pretty much of a madhouse. You can imagine the ships coming in loaded commercially. That meant that all the space was occupied with gear. They had to be unloaded at the pier in the rain and the material sorted out, reassigned to the units, and then we combat loaded the ships that we're going to go to Guadalcanal with. So it was, a, it was a madhouse and the stevedores who were supposed to be doing the work could not be told what was going on or the purpose of it. So they were very, very annoyed at having to work so hard and not having their tea breaks and they were very strongly unionized in New Zealand and tea breaks were an important part of their union contract. The net result was that General Vandegrift threw them all off the piers 
locked the gates with Marine sentries on them, and we did our own loading and unloading. Well, that was an interesting experience in itself, but then there's another side of the story. Be it as it may, we made the sailing date on the 22nd of July. We actually put our machine guns and uh, radios on the vehicles aboard ship. And the reason they were painted gray was because that's the only paint we could bump from the Navy. And uh, we headed for the Fijis where we were going to have a rehearsal. And there in the Fijis was the first meeting of a number of unit commanders who were coming in to reinforce the division and also the senior admirals commanding this whole operation. I was not present at the meeting, it's just General Vandegrift and one or two of his officers. But later on we found out that, first of all, the theater commander did, did not feel it was sufficiently important for him to go. So he sent a deputy, an Admiral Fletcher, who had commanded the carriers in the Battle of the Coral Sea and in the Battle of Midway, was very, very concerned with the vulnerability of the few carriers that we had left in the Pacific area. And as far as he was concerned, the Marines were pulling a raid on Guadalcanal, and he was not about to hang around more than a couple of days. He was going to take off. Well, this meant that the cargoes had to be unloaded in a couple of days, and Admiral Turner said he didn't think he could do it, but he was going to try. And General Vandegrift said he knew damn well it couldn't be done. So there was a very difficult time for the poor general, but nonetheless, that was the way the thing went. No one changed Fletcher's mind. He was the senior man there. And uh, nobody was really convincing Admiral Turner that he couldn't do it. But uh, General Vandegrift was absolutely correct. It could not be done in the time allocated. At any rate, we sailed at the end of July. We sailed out of the Fijis, where the rehearsal had been a complete flop because the beach that we were supposed to land on was full of obstacles, coral and boulders. And the Navy decided they weren't going to risk the boats that they were going to need for the actual combat landing and the rehearsal in the Fijis. So the whole thing was aborted. We never got ashore. Some people did get ashore, and as a matter of fact, we left behind several Marines who never got the word to get back aboard ship. But we sailed off for the final run to the Solomons at the end of July and ran into terrible weather, which was very fortunate because that meant the Japanese observation aircraft never found us. So we got to Guadalcanal on the morning of the 7th of August without being spotted, total surprise. And the landings went off just very nicely against no opposition either on Guadalcanal side where the main landing took place or on the Tulagi side which was the headquarters of the Solomons where the landing itself was done without any difficulty but the subsequent fighting was very serious. We had nothing like it on Guadalcanal itself. The uh, only item of interest was that on the way up to Guadalcanal from the Fijis, Colonel Hunt, had, had the regimental commander of the 5th Marines, had had me, myself, and uh, Ike Eigelhardt, who had commanded his engineer company, in for a little meeting in his cabin. And he said, the colonel told us, we have a stream on our right flank when we go ashore. 
which of course is theoretically an obstacle to any Japanese counterattack. But it's also an obstacle to our advance. I'm concerned about the, the advance issue and uh, new people come up with any way of helping us get across this waterway. We don't know how big it is or anything like that, but you know as much about it as I do. Uh, incidentally, our intelligence was pretty poor. We didn't even know the name of the stream and we had it corrected later on on several reports when things finally got straightened out as to where different objectives were that mislocated and uh, at any rate, that's neither here nor there. But, uh, Ike and I came up with the idea of using amphibian tractors as pontoons for bridges and if his engineers could build some platforms that we could hook on to the amphibian tractors, we could run the tractor into a stream and use these wooden platforms, hinge them on, the, on each side and form a, a bridge. Well, the whole thing was concocted right then and there. We did some sketches and we went down into the hold of the ships got enough uh, dunnage and uh, timbers and what have you. And at, at any rate, when we got to Guadalcanal, the three amphibian tractors were in the water. First thing of all the boats, everything else, these three amphibian tractors who started heading for shore because they were so slow that they had to get on their way long before the infantry. And they actually landed just behind the first wave and they proceeded up to the location of the stream and they did enter the stream and they did make bridges and the infantry did cross over the bridges and the bridges were big enough to handle jeeps so that essentially they were a success. This is the first use of the amphibian tractor outside of what was conceived of as its normal role which is purely a logistic vehicle. The units that have been organized uh, in the absence of any information have been organized as motor transport companies and they were essentially treated as seagoing trucks. Meanwhile, the Navy was dumping uh, supplies and equipment as fast as they could bring it into the beach. The beach soon turned to an absolute madhouse and every amphibian tractor, every truck, everything we had was used in hauling the stuff off the beach and into the dumps. And uh, two days later, right after the Japanese came in on the second night and uh, we had been bombed, the ships had been bombed the first day and the second day also. But then the second day the Japanese came in with a task force and that night they sank four of our cruisers three American and, and uh, one Australian. One of the Navy's worst defeats was a terrible, terrible night. And we were watching the thing from uh, the shelter of our amphibian tractors. And of course, we thought naturally it was the American Navy who was winning, but it turned out the next morning that the debris washing up on the beaches uh, was made in the US and not in, in Japan. Well, the next thing that happened, of course, Admiral Turner followed Admiral Fletcher, who pulled his carriers out, and we were left with limited supplies, not all of our equipment, mostly not the engineer equipment, and uh, 
just about enough troops to put a perimeter around the airfield, which had been taken, of course, with very little opposition. And the situation seemed to be precarious. Among other things, we had only two meals a day, not enough rations to go around. One of the meals was Japanese rice with whatever condiments we could put in. <clears throat> At one time, the condiments included sheep's tongue that came in a large quantities from New Zealand. Not the favorite food of the Marines, but uh, nonetheless quite edible. Uh, that's where we learned to appreciate heart of palm salad, which of course required that the trees be knocked down and the hearts of palm was not enjoyed until there had been a bombardment. And the Japanese, of course, came in very, very soon with the empty ocean around us and we had no airplanes overhead for the first 13 days. There was no friendly aviation. Everything that flew had the meatball on the wing, and most of the stuff that was afloat uh, was flying the Rising Sun flag. And uh, it, was, it was kind of a lonely place, lonely place. And by that time, we'd gotten used to the fact that every day, around noontime, we'd get bombed noontime being the earliest that a formation of bombers flying out of Rabaul could reach us. And so we got it, sometimes we just got it at noon, and sometimes we got it at noon and then in the early evening, which was the second run. in Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. But shelling in a day, at night, and uh, bombing in the day was the standard routine. And uh, by September, our Amtraks had just completely worn out. I was transferred back to the 5th Marines, and by a strange twist of fate, ended up in M Company, and this time I commanded the whole company. Now, M Company was a machine gun company, we had three platoons of machine guns that were normally attached to the infantry battalions. A mortar platoon that was normally the plaything of the battalion commander. He liked to run his mortars. That was his artillery. And we had an anti-tank platoon of uh, 50 caliber machine guns, which were not very much of an anti-tank weapon. But anyway, it was a good, formidable piece of firepower. And the job, of course, was to provide the cover of the whole battalion front. And uh, so my practice was to visit the front, so-called when we were in position, of every day to check in with the troops and see how they were going on. And one time, wearing a clean uniform by myself, <clears throat> I took a short shortcut through a ravine and I almost stepped on a Japanese soldier 
who apparently had infiltrated through the wire during the night and was uh, observing what was going on in, in the Marine rear area. And when this dumb Marine, me, almost stepped on him. Well, this lad was not imbued with the spirit of Banzai because he took one look at me and instead of sticking me with that bayonet he had on the end of his rifle, he started running in the wrong direction. And I thought to myself, aha, Japanese, enemy, enemy, uh, shoot, shoot gun, yeah, I've got a gun. And finally, what seemed like an hour later, I, I pulled out my pistol and I fired at him. Well, by a strange coincidence, I happened to fire number one in my basic school class on record day with a pistol. So I thought I was a pretty good shot with a pistol. If I'd have thrown it at it, the Japanese soldier, I probably would have hit him. But as it was, I fired at him. I missed him by a mile, which just goes to show you the impact of surprise and combat, what it does to your nerves. At any rate, uh, I, pretty soon I started making some noise enough to rustle some marine interest. And we went looking for this young Japanese soldier, but never found him. And as a matter of fact, the Marines around weren't quite sure that I had seen one. They gave me kind of that skeptical look. At any rate, then we had in September, I should say, you know, first of all, in August, we had the Battle of the Tenero, where a, a Japanese colonel named Ishiki had a regiment that was supposed to land at Midway. Well, of course, he never got to Midway. So they ordered him to Guadalcanal, and before he had anything of his regiment on Guadalcanal, he had just had one battalion. He launched the battalion into an assault against the American positions, convinced, of course, that he was going to be able to drive them out. He didn't do very much in reconnoitering. He didn't do very much at all in planning, and he didn't do very much in using his brains. Result of which was that the mass battalion attacked the front of the first Marines occupying the east side of the perimeter and they came across machine gun fire firing long barbed wire <clears throat> and the next morning the tank platoon attached to the first regiment moved in on the flank of this Japanese force and drove them to the sea. Shortly after the morning came in the uh, Japanese were absolutely wiped out. Colonel Ishiki was killed, and the whole regiment, the whole battalion was stuck in the sand, and it was a rather ghastly mess. That very same day that Ishiki had launched the attack, the first Marine aviation had landed on Guadalcanal, so that the second day of the attack, launched at night, the second day of the attack, the uh, aviation was actually able to intervene and shoot up some of Ishigi's rear area. But basically by that time it was all over. This was in, in, in August. Then in September, the Japanese had brought in more reinforcements and this time they attacked the ridge, which was the dominant piece of terrain overlooking the airfield not, I should say, not overlooking, but close to the airfield, coming from an attack coming from inland. 
and a Japanese general named Kawaguchi had assembled his forces by marching them inland and was going to attack the airfield from the south. Meanwhile, the Marines had taken the Raider Battalion that had landed on Tulagi. They brought it over from Tulagi and put it on the ridge. So uh, Lieutenant Colonel Edson, Red Mike Edson, was up there on the ridge with this battalion that Kawaguchi hit. And uh, it turned out to be one hell of a fight. And uh, suffice it to say that Edson got the Congressional Medal of Honor for commanding the thing. And it was an, an incredible performance of uh, a night action of infantry locked in, in combat when you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was uh, certainly a well-earned decoration. And out of that, uh, the battalion, the Raider battalion, was pretty badly hit. The casualties it had taken on Tulagi, plus the casualties it took in the Battle of the, of the Bloody Ridge, was such that the battalion was sent, pulled off the island and uh, Edson was promoted to colonel and assigned as commanding officer of the 5th Marines. Leroy P. Hunt, the commander that I had worked for, who was a veteran of World War I, was uh, pulled out and relieved and sent on home. Uh, he was not relieved in the sense of being pulled out of combat because he retired as a lieutenant general, so he didn't do badly at all. But he was an older man, and uh, it was a good thing that he was to, his his command was taken over by by Edson. Well, when Edson took over the command, he he also took over, of course, the responsibility for assigning the front lines, and he did something to my front line, to my battalion's front line, that I didn't like. And I told my battalion commander that the machine gun positions that conform to the new regimental commander's wishes were not, to my mind, all satisfactory. And uh, so he said, what do you want me to do about it? And I said, well, talk to the colonel. He said, I'm not going to talk to the colonel. Uh, nobody was going to talk to Red Mike Edson, the hero of the bridge, especially argue with his tactical sense. So I, I wasn't smart enough to know better, and I went to regimental headquarters, saw Don Dixon, who was the adjutant at the time. Don, incidentally, was the, the artist that did all those sketches of the Marines on Guadalcanal. A very good, very good artist. And I asked Don if I could see the old man, and Don brought me in to see the colonel. And the colonel, the gentleman from Vermont, whose appearance <clears throat> was as glacial as the weather in the state in the wintertime. Icy blue eyes looked at me and he said, what's on your mind, Captain? I told him, I said, I don't like the machine gun positions that have been uh, selected when you move the lines and I'd like to shift them around. And he looked at me without saying a word. He just picked up his steel, hel picked up his steel helmet, got up and said, let's go take a look. I spent the rest of the day not behind our wire looking at our positions, but on the other side of the wire. He said the only way to really find out how these things looked was to be on the enemy's side. 
Well, I didn't mind that uh, under normal circumstances, but uh, there have been an awful lot of Japanese wandering around in that area. And I must say that for the next few hours, I had a prickly feeling in the back of my shoulders. But uh, we did have a nice discussion. He had a very good sense of terrain. And I'm happy to say that uh, he argued me out of most of my objections, but I managed to salvage uh, enough changes to, for my own self-esteem. And so uh, we got into October. In October, the, re the regiment decided, the division decided the regiment should be used in an offensive. And the 3rd Battalion was going to be used as the anvil of an operation in which it was going to be a flanking movement, the hammer sweeping the Japanese and striking the anvil. So we started marching to the Matanakawa River where the 3rd Battalion was going to set up the anvil position against which the Japanese were to be driven. And we really never got there because the Japanese thought they'd better come on our side of the river first. So when we got there, the first night was an absolute bedlam. The Japanese and the Marines were all mixed up during the night. And normally, the, the rule was that when nighttime came, you, you got your hole, dug a hole if you didn't have one handy, and uh, stayed there. Anything that moved was hostile. And here we had a night in which there was constant movement. I had a, actually a machine gun. The water jacket was slashed by a sword stroke from a Japanese officer who did manage to get one of my, my men. And uh, the poor lad spent a very bad night, practically disemboweled, and then was eventually died the next day. But uh, at, as things were getting a little dicey, uh, Colonel Edson came up and wanted to find out what was going on. And when he learned what the situation was, he decided he was going to stay there himself. And uh, after it got dark, and when I say dark, I mean dark, you just couldn't see a thing. I got a call from the colonel, I went up to see him and he said, I want you to get four machine guns from your reserve and I want you to put those machine guns up there just in front of the woods to cover that clearing that leads to the river just in case the Japanese send anything across the river more serious than the outpost they have now. And so the answer to that is aye aye sir and the four machine guns being far to the rear. I had to find a jeep and a driver and get him started, heading back down the trail to the rear area to get the four guns and enough ammunition to 500 rounds, two boxes of ammunition per gun. Meanwhile, I had to find somebody to shoot the guns and gun crews and all my gun crews obviously were committed with the guns they were with the infantry, they were in position up forward. So I wandered around the command post, and any time I'd find a body, I'd say, you just volunteered to be a machine gunner. And uh, the way we operated was that each man put, held onto the belt of the Marine in front of him, and we formed a snake line. By that time, the sergeant came up with four machine guns, four tripods, and eight boxes of ammunition. 
that gave me three men for gun, one to carry the gun, one to carry the tripod, one to carry the two boxes of ammunition. And uh, I formed this long line of people holding on to each other, or, and I was in the lead and I went along the trail. And it was so dark I wasn't quite sure where the trail was, so I had to bend down and feel it. So I did most of my walking in a squatting position along which I felt one time a leg. And I was a little apprehensive as I fumbled down toward the shoe because if the shoe had a split toe, I knew he'd be the wrong side. He'd be Japanese. And I was delighted to find it was a Marine shoe. And when I said Marine in a very low voice, there was a husky reply, yeah, yeah. And it was quite obvious that the young fellow that laying there on the ground was probably as scared as much as I was. At any rate, we finally got to where I thought was about the edge of the woods, turned left, and dropped off my four guns in what I thought was approximately the proper position. Then I made my way back to the command post, reported the job done to the colonel, and moved into my foxhole where I spent the rest of a delightful night listening to the colonel, talking to the mortars, talking to various people, using the telephone that I had in my company because everything else was swamped out in this pouring rain that continued most of the night. That was probably the worst night I ever spent any place during the whole bloody war. And uh, the next morning it turned out that the guns were not exactly placed in the most beautiful positions, but uh, they were adequate. And um, I went up there first thing in the morning to make sure that there any adjustments were made before the colonel came up to inspect them, trying to keep peace in the family. And eventually uh, the uh, striking force came in, the anvil held, and uh, after three days of glorious adventure, we were back in our rear positions and uh, ready to start all over again. We started all over again in November. We did exactly the same thing. And uh, there at the time, I heard some 155 shells going overhead. Since this is the first time I'd heard that, I telephoned to the rear and said, what's firing? And they told me that some Army 155 guns had just come in and had gone into battery and were supporting our operation. And uh, when the operation was over, I went back to take a look at these guns. And much to my surprise, they had been manufactured at Le Creusot in France in 1917 and had been turned over to the Army in a the reverse lend-lease that we enjoyed in World War I because in World War I, a great deal of our equipment, the Shushu rifle, automatic rifle, before we got the Browning, was French manufactured. Practically all the aviation was French manufactured and an awful lot of our artillery was French manufactured. This was one of the contributions that had been made. And uh, they, we now get to the final phases of it. This was our last offensive. I should go back 
to an amusing incident that occurred in uh, late October when, uh, not late October, late September, I'm sorry, late, late September when uh, the 7th Marines came ashore and uh, Colonel Puller, the famous Chesty Puller, was a commanding a battalion of the 7th Marines and he was scheduled to land over the beach area in which I had, which I covered with a platoon. Uh, at the time, the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, and my company uh, uh, covered the right angle, the left uh, uh, angle of the perimeter defenses. We had a platoon of machine guns, the rifle company deployed on the beach. Then the line bent inland and two-thirds of the battalion was actually inland. So we formed the corner of the covering uh, front for the perimeter in, in the left, on the left, in the west. And uh, with Colonel Puller bringing his battalion through my wire, I had only enough wire to lay it down and pick it up every time I moved. There was no wire to waste. And I could only make one double apron fence with the wire I had. So I had had uh, gaps cut in the wire and sentries put on the gaps so that the infantry coming ashore could go through the gaps and then I could just hook them back up together again and close my gaps and I was back in business. Well, I had one of my officers came rushing up and said the 7th Marine unit's coming through with just crushing the wire, there's such a damn hurry to get ashore. So I went and looked up the battalion commander and to my surprise, it was Louis Puller. And I told the colonel that what, his people were raised to hell with the wire and it was all I had and I was very unhappy. And he turned to his exec and told him to take care of it and then that was the end of that. And he, then he said to me something to the effect of uh, how are things going? And I said, well, not, not too bad, but I said, one thing that concerns me is the fact that we're piling up an awful lot of stuff on the beach. And uh, that means we're going to be shelled tonight. And uh, you're, you're being bivouacked right, right across the road from where we are. Uh, make, I would recommend, sir, that the troops dig in. Well, he thanked me very much, sort of in the tone of a dismissal. Yeah, 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 thanks. And uh, and that was it. And he turned back whatever he was doing. So I left. And that evening I looked over to see uh, how the troops were digging in across the road and noticed that nobody was digging in. They were opening up their mosquito nets and spreading them out. and spreading their ponchos and getting ready to go to sleep quietly on, on top of the ground. And uh, I went over and told them that I think maybe they should dig themselves a little hole and get into it. Well, nobody paid any attention because normally, you see, uh, they, they figured that this was just some of the old, old timers that trying to scare the newcomers. Well, of course, that night the Japanese came in with a small force and the destroyers fired up some star shells and uh, threw a few rounds into the dumps along the beach.
steel helmets, spoons, mess gear, anything they could claw at, trying to dig a hole to get in under the under the ground cover. Uh, it's the only time I ever laughed during one of those incidents throughout the whole operation. By uh, the time that November rolled around, there was some very nasty fighting at sea. But by that time, it was pretty clear that uh, our difficult days seemed to be over. And the division, which incidentally had not had any malarial prophylaxis for 30 days after we got there, everyone had malaria, everyone had all all the things you can think of that in the way of tropical sores, tropical diseases, and uh, so it was time to be relieved. And uh, on the 9th of December, General Vandegrift turned over the, the job to the Army, and we got aboard ship and sailed for New Zealand. We thought New Zealand, where we had left all our gear, but we actually sailed for Australia and never saw our gear again. But then there were compensations, so that uh, we ended up in Brisbane. And uh, in Brisbane, we moved into an army camp some 35 miles out of town, where the, uh, the army units, U.S. Army units had been moved up to New Guinea, and we occupied the empty camp. And uh, the minute that the tension of four months on Guadalcanal was let off, turned off, <clears throat> all the sick people who had been standing up just because they were so tense, they weren't standing up anymore. In, a, in very short order, we filled all the local hospitals. And uh, General Vandegrift asked General MacArthur if we could find some more salubrious climate for the division to recuperate in. And uh, the decision was made to send the division to Mel Melbourne. And we got back aboard ship, and on the way to Melbourne, I got orders along with 15 or so officers from the 5th Marines to report to uh, Quantico to attend the 1st Command and Staff course. Well, we were not the slightest bit interested in leaving Australia because we discovered as we were up in Brisbane, this was indeed paradise because all the Australian men we're in North Africa or in Singapore fighting the wars over there, and they left all their women behind. And uh, this was a very difficult time for them, and the Marines were in a position to assist them in this moment of trial and stress. And uh, they were looking forward to doing so. And I was looking forward to contributing. And I didn't want to go back to the States like anybody else. I have never, never, never in four landings that I've been on ever heard of, seen, or even a rumor of any young Marine that did not do that job as required. I've never heard of a man that quit. I think that's pretty, pretty good commentary for the value of the individuals that we were dealing with and what they were asked to perform. Misadventures aside, 
much work was left to do in the great battle for the domination of the Pacific. Kreisat and his fellow Marines faced great and arduous tests in the years ahead, but they would not waver. They did not falter. And so they fought on, assaulting beach after bloody beach, island after island in the drive to Tokyo. But always, Kreisat would remember that earliest of Pacific battles, where the tide had been turned and boys had become men. It was the first blunting of the victorious Japanese military, and it put an entire empire on the run. It was the bloody battle for Guadalcanal. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld, Brian Donovan, and Rod Pyle. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.